Amen. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 2. To Luke chapter 2. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you now that what you've just heard commence outside is some sort of drum line that's been out there for like the last two or three weeks. It got pretty bad last week. I was told I should tell you guys that it's going to happen. It may go on the whole service. I'm going to be distracted by it. You're going to be distracted by it. Let's just throw it out there, call it what it is, and let's push on together to uh, encounter God's Word to the accompaniment of some sort of dragon-related drum corps outside. (laughs) We're in Luke chapter 2 this morning. What we're doing is finishing up a three-week series in which we try to understand the meaning of Jesus coming better because we understand it through the minor prophets. As a congregation, we've been walking through those last 12 books in the Old Testament one by one, week by week, from from September all the way up up through the end of November. And And now we're trying to connect with the meaning of those promises by looking at how they get fulfilled in Jesus. Another way of understanding our series is that we're trying to take elements of the Christmas story that we all take for granted. They're just so basic and show themselves up on all kinds of Christmas ornaments and Christmas cards and what have you. And and actually re-examine them, deconstruct them, take them apart and try to figure out what it is that makes them meaningful so that we we aren't dulled to them when we hear them, but we connect with their significance. Last week was Bethlehem, the significance of Bethlehem. And, and this week brings another piece to the, uh, to the Christmas story that is perhaps even more taken for granted than Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. It's the concept of peace. It's the hinge of the angel's announcement to the shepherds of the, of the song that sort of carries them away. After they've told them where to go to find Jesus, they just get carried away with themselves at the significance of what's happened. And, and they, they glorify God first and then announce peace on earth. What does that mean? Why is it so important? That's what we're asking this morning. I think peace seems to be especially in need of this kind of close examination because we, I think we have associations with peace that don't help us very much when we come to this passage. Now, I don't know if, if you guys are like me, but when I hear the word peace, what I immediately think of is the end of a war. Like I think of treaties of peace. I think of Paris. I think of Appomattox. I think of Versailles. Or, or what happened in Iraq this week on Wednesday, right? The, the official ceremonial end to America's war there. That's what I think of when I hear peace. But when the angels announced peace to the shepherds, Israel wasn't at war. They were, of course, sort of colonized by this big empire based in Rome. But they weren't actively at war against them. And, and if what the angels meant was an end to the to the rule of Rome over them, then, they, then Jesus was a failure because Jesus came and he went and Israel was still in, in subjection to Rome's empire. So they can't have meant a sort of peace treaty when they announced peace at Jesus' coming. What do they mean? Now, as, as with each of the past couple weeks, we're looking to the minor prophets for some answers. Those, these were the books that were written just that were written last in the Old Testament, so the, the closest ones to Jesus' coming and they talk about the things that Jesus was coming to, to do, to fulfill, they have answers for us. In previous weeks, we, we've, picked on, we've picked out one specific text from a minor prophet that gets quoted in the stories about Jesus' birth and, and really delved into it more deeply. This week, we're not going to do that. This week, we're going to take a much larger, more bird's-eye type view on what the minor prophets are teaching. Because rather than seeing peace as, as just one as just a topic of one passage in, 
in the Minor Prophets, I think we can see it as the goal that all of them are speaking to. And here's why. Peace in the Old Testament. Peace as the angels would have meant it and as the shepherds would have understood it when they announced it to them is something of a shorthand for all of salvation in the Old Testament. What we want to get at to know why it's so important is, is to get at the answer to two questions. Why or, or what is peace? How does the Old Testament talk about it? And then where can it be found? Where can it be found? Our passage, our central passage this morning is Luke chapter 2. It's already been read for us. So I'm just going to dive into the first question. What is peace? Before we can know why it matters, we need to understand what it is. And, and in the Old Testament, as I've mentioned, peace is something of a shorthand for salvation. It's this Hebrew word you've probably heard before, shalom. It has this all-encompassing meaning to it. It's not just the end of hostility like we think of peace. It's, it's, it's like a new world order. Shalom is is a picture of perfect harmony, of happiness and wholeness, of contentment. Here's the way one, uh, one of the most prominent dictionaries of Old Testament words. Here's the, here are the words that it uses to translate, possible translations of the Hebrew word shalom. In addition to peace, here's what it can, here's what it can mean. It can mean friendship. It can mean happiness. It can mean prosperity. It can mean health. It can mean salvation in general. It's not hard to see why, why peace is not just something that gets talked about when, when war is the subject, but peace is something that you wish on others in the Bible. It's a greeting. It's a, it's a goodbye, a farewell. You're wishing peace on them because peace is this attitude or perspective or, or state of being that's right, that's whole and perfect. Breaking it down, I think we can go a little more, we can say more here. We can get a little more... Um, a little more clarity by dividing the different categories of this peace that the Old Testament refers to. Again, what we're doing is trying to understand the angels' announcement. They tell the shepherds there's peace on earth because Jesus is born, essentially. What did they mean? They, they had to have meant something that was already around, that was present, a concept that would have been familiar at the time, and the prophets help us understand what it is. I want to look at it in three different divisions. This peace that they're, that they're looking forward to and that has apparently come now with the coming of Jesus, it's peace with God. It's harmony in the relationship with God first and foremost. It's a peace or a, a sense of harmony within yourself, and it's a peace or, or sense of harmony with others, with each other. All of those come out in the Minor Prophets, and we're going to take a sort of flyover of them to see it. The Minor Prophets are about the coming salvation, and when they talk about it, they're talking about peace. So peace with God. In the Old Testament, it always starts here. And it makes sense. It makes sense because at the very beginning of the Old Testament, when the story itself starts, what, are they, what, what is the story? It's the story of a perfect environment in the garden, one, of, one that defines what peace is like where there's no concern about, about where your food is going to come from or no concern about any kind of external threat to you. There's, there's perfect harmony between the, the two humans and between everything else that's around them, and, and it's all under God. And what shatters that harmony? It's first and foremost a sort of declaration of war by God's creatures against their king who made them. It is their decision to trade in his word and command to them for their own desires and the false word of the serpent who deceived them. It's a disruption of peace with God that leads to a trickle-down of all the, uh, the negative effects that the rest of Genesis talks about in the world. You don't get that until this relationship with God is broken. 
That's what all sin amounts to, a breaking of the peace between God and his, and his people. Restoring this relationship, of course, bringing peace or shalom to it, is always the goal of God's covenant. When he comes to his people and he pledges himself to them, the goal is that he would be their God and they would be his people, that that peaceful relationship of harmony and wholeness would be restored. That's the point of the peace offerings that are all through the Old Testament law. One of the most fundamental things that people sacrificed for in the Old Testament was an offering of peace to restore this relationship with God. And it's all in the Minor Prophets. It's, it's the goal of the, the primary goal of the prophets is to see this relationship between God and his people restored. What they promise is that God's going to provide once and for all this kind of peace. Yes, they promise that he's going to purge his people. He's going to judge them in the immediate present. But always looking beyond that time of judgment is a time where God doesn't count their sins against them and wipes them clean. Let me point you back to a couple examples of that. Think back to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah was one of the weirdest of the prophets that we looked at. It's full of these visions that are really hard to crack. But one of them was really, one of the visions was really clear. In Zechariah chapter 3, the vision that the prophet has is of the high priest over Israel, the one who represented them before God for their sacrifices. He, He represented their purity and their hope for peace with God. The vision was of this high priest and of the accuser, Satan, standing before him. And the accuser calls him out for the filthy rags that he's got wrapped around his body. His vestments are not pure. They are defiled because of sin. He accuses him before God and and basically in him is accusing Israel and saying this people is not worthy of a peaceful relationship with you. Of course, the beauty and the imagery where that vision goes is to God calling for those filthy garments to be taken off of Joshua the high priest, and to have, repla- have them replaced within, with vestments or, or, or garments that are pure, that are completely spotless, because God has given them to his people. Think also of Micah chapter 7. This is the kind of peace that's described there at the end of that chapter. This is what Micah says. Looking ahead, past the judgment, to the time when God would restore a peaceful relationship with his people, this is what Micah looks to. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I think this is what the angel had in mind when he told Joseph the night that he came to Joseph recorded in Matthew. And he told Joseph that you're going to call this child's name Jesus. And you're going to call him that because he is going to save his people from their sins. The peace that he had in mind was this peace of restored relationship with God. This is what the angels sang about to the shepherds. And when they announced peace to the shepherds, these angels were looking ahead past the birth of Jesus to the time when to, to what Paul would refer to as the peace that's made on the cross. In Colossians, the image that Paul gives us for the significance of Jesus' death is that it makes peace. Peace between God and his people. This peace with God, this standing in his presence as, as those that he declares are right with him. That's the source of all wholeness, of all happiness, of, of all peace on every level. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one. One. 
in that position. It's a peace or a harmony with God first. But it's more than that. It's also a psychological peace or an internal peace, a a peace within yourself that's promised in the prophets and that's referred to by the angels when they announce peace to the shepherds. Ultimately, the, the, the peace with God, that's a, that's a peace that's objective. It's there. It's outside of you. It's something given to you by God and his work through Jesus. But it, it doesn't stay outside of you. It changes the way you think about yourself and the way you relate to other people. It, this objective peace that's out here and accomplished once and for all leads to a subjective peace inside of you that grows and develops over time. That's a piece that's referred to many times in the Minor Prophets, and I think that's what the angels had in mind when they announced it to the shepherds. It comes, this is the kind of peace inside yourself that comes from knowing God is for you and not against you. It comes from being satisfied in the one for whom you're, you're made. And what we're talking about here is a freedom from anything that would, that would keep you from happiness, from wholeness or contentment. Generally, the things that could keep you from that what could, what could cause you not to have this sense of shalom in yourself? I think generally they could fall into a couple of categories. It could be an internal thing. It could be a, a, a fear or a, a, a consumption with yourself and your own performance, how God views you, how other people view you. That, that your own track record can take away your peace. Or it can be something outside of you that threatens you, fear about things that are outside of your control. Let me pry around here a little bit. The first, the first thing that could keep you from, from this sort of psychological peace, it, it off, the, the, a sense of, of performance and the need to, to do well, to measure up. Fear that we haven't measured up shows itself often in guilt. It's a sense of failure. It's, it's often attached to guilt over sin, to a, a feeling that you could never measure up or please God. But it showed the same basic drive to perform your way into stability or peace it shows itself in other ways, too. And, and I, for one, I'm actually usually more concerned about how other people look at me than how God looks at me. So when, this in, when, the, when I'm cost internal peace because I'm concerned I haven't measured up or performed well, it's usually because I'm afraid of how others are viewing me if they're, if they're judging me negatively. So here's what it might look like if you're like me. You ever get that feeling in your stomach when you, see, when, when you hear somebody telling someone else something that you said maybe about them or something that affects them and they're not they're not describing it in exactly the way that you would and you feel like that person is not going to get the right image of what you think when you're you're you're, you're being retold so to speak but not exactly right you ever get that feeling of just, you, you want to get in there you want to correct it you're so you're, you're afraid that the image that these words are going to give of you is not the one that you want other people to receive here's another one and this one applies to me a lot less because i'm not I have not moved into the Facebook age yet, but I'm told that, or I've seen that you, in Facebook, you put your own pictures up, but you can also show up in other people's pictures that include you and tag you, right? So if you get tagged in somebody else, have you you got that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you see a picture of yourself that you didn't choose, that isn't very flattering of you, that maybe doesn't get your best angle or makes you look balder than you really are? One of those pictures, you know that feeling that you get when, you're, when a, an image of you is being projected to others that you're not comfortable with? You get that feeling because you don't have peace. When you feel that way, you're missing shalom. You're afraid that you haven't measured up. 
The second thing that could keep us from measuring, from, from this psychological peace, this peace within ourselves. So that we've, we talked about this internal, this internal threat that we aren't performing or we aren't who we want to be, but we also lose a peace within ourselves, a, a, a psychological peace, because we fear that other things might happen to us that are outside of our control. It's, it's, it's the lack of peace that leads to concern over whether we're safe. Am I really safe? Will I have enough money? Will I be able to make ends meet? The salvation that's promised by the prophets, the one that's announced by the angels, it's not separate. You cannot separate it from this peace inside yourself. It's not just objective peace with God. It is, it is communicated into us and gives us a sense of wholeness or a contentment or happiness. Consider a few examples from the prophets. Let me just point you to a couple. Micah chapter 5. We looked at this one in depth last week when we were talking about Bethlehem. This is where the, the reference to Bethlehem shows up. But in that same passage, looking ahead to this ruler who's going to come, to the ones that the angel announced as bringing peace, here's what it says. Think about these words in light of, a, of an internal psychological angst that we will be free from when we know his peace. He, referring to the coming leader, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Do you see that? He, he being their peace is intimately connected with them dwelling secure, free from the concern in themselves, free from an angst about who they are and what might be done to them. They'll dwell secure. Think about Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is, is that one of the minor prophets that, that is a, almost a Q&A between the prophet and God. He's, the prophet is looking around at how bad things are, and he's, he's seeing that his view of God and God's love and faithfulness doesn't square up with, with the reality that he's living in. And so he's asking God, why would you let these things happen to me? And, and God takes him through and, and, and reasons with him, and it's a, it's a beautiful story. But it ends, the end of Micah chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, it ends with Habakkuk coming to realize that no matter what his circumstances are, no matter how bad things might get, he is content and happy in God. This is, what, this is the way Haggai puts it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... Even if everything that gives me security and peace in myself is cut off from me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do you see that? Haggai is secure. He has peace in himself, not just with God, but he, in the way that he experiences the world, he is at peace. He, has, he knows shalom, and not because his circumstances improve, but because he trusts in God. Finally, let me give you one more. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15. This is one of my favorites. This whole section, really, the end of Zephaniah. Here's, here is the way that Zephaniah pictures the salvation that's coming. Zephaniah has judgment in it, just like so many of the other ones. But in chapter 3, he's looking past the judgment to a time when God restores all things. And here, here's the imagery that he uses. Verse 15 says, The Lord has taken away judgments against you. That's the threat that you haven't measured up. What costs you psychological peace? You feel like you haven't performed enough. 
God takes away all judgments against you. His own just judgments and any judgments that others might have against you. He takes them away. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul's pulling for when he says, if, if God is one who justifies, who can condemn? Verse 15 continues. So God has taken away the judgments against you, and there's freedom there from guilt, from your failure to perform up to the standards. But he's also, verse 15 says, cleared away your enemies. I think that's just a shorthand reference to all the things outside of you that could threaten you, that could cost you a sense of peace because you're afraid of what these things might do to you, of a future that's out of your control. God has cleared away all of your enemies. There's the freedom from external threats. For as Paul says again, Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. And there's peace in that. Zephaniah goes on, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. And he's going to take those who are outcasts, those who are shamed, and he's going to change their shame into renown and praise. Why? Because they are any different than they were? No, but because they find their identity in him and attached to him, united to him, they are praiseworthy. There's psychological peace. There is identity security. And that's what the angels had in mind. That's what Jesus came to provide. Finally, there's, there's, there's the peace with God, harmony with God in that relationship. There is harmony in yourself, how you view yourself and how you view your place in the world. And, and then there's also peace with others. There's also social peace. Shalom is referred to in the Old Testament, this sort of peace, as a reign of justice, where everything is done rightly. There is no more exploitation There is no more violence against the innocent. It's a picture of perfect peace. There's no coincidence that so many times in our study of the minor prophets, what we saw the prophets condemning in Israel was their exploitation of each other. A lot of times it was the powerful and the wealthy and the kings who were ripping off those who had less power. And, And it was always connected back to their idolatry. Once they stop trusting in God, they're looking to get a leg up wherever they can. And that means seeing other people as threats to their security. So an absence of peace in relationship with God led them to personal insecurity, which led them to oppress other people. The picture of the prophets is of a day when that is no longer necessary because there exists perfect peace with God within yourself and therefore with other people. There are some beautiful images of this coming peace. Isaiah 11 has one of the most famous. It's, it's, the, it's the passage where we're told lions and lambs lie down next to each other and infants sleep over the den of a cobra and all of these, all of these things that we think of as being antithetical just have to be against each other and fighting with each other are, are in harmony because no longer are others seen as threats. Zephaniah chapter 3, to go back there, brings this same kind of imagery, this imagery of social peace, of harmony, of shalom, closer to real life. And the Isaiah 11 is beautiful, right? It makes for great Christmas cards and things like that. But it's harder to imagine in real life. I think Zephaniah helps us to apply it to situations we can connect with. This is what, this is what Zephaniah in chapter 3, a little bit earlier than what we just read. Here's how he describes God's people those who find their place in this reign of peace, in this shalom, here's how they relate to each other. Look at verse 12. It starts with who these people are. I will leave in your midst a people who are humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Okay, there are people who have peace in their relationship with God. Here's what it looks like as they relate to other people. Verse 13. 
Those who are left in Israel shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Why? Why is it that they've stopped trying to manipulate each other? Trying to rip each other off, to deceive, to protect themselves? Why, why have they stopped that? Verse 13 says, They shall graze and they shall lie down and none shall make them afraid. And you see that, that all of, really, if you boil it down, all of the hostility, enmity between people is rooted in personal insecurity with, with, with the tendency to see others as threats that need to be eliminated, the tendency to see ourselves as having a kingdom that needs to be protected. Zephaniah looks ahead to a time when there's not just peace with God or peace within ourselves, but that it actually shows itself in a perfect harmony that's rooted in those other aspects of peace. There's no need to lie when you've got nothing to protect because the Lord makes you secure and so nothing can make you afraid. These are the images of peace that the minor prophets point us to. This is just to scratch the surface of what the concept of peace meant to Israel, to readers, to those faithful readers of her holy books who were looking for God to appear to them. This is the image of peace that the shepherds would have known about when the angels announced that it had come. That's what is peace. The next question, though, is where is peace? Where is it? Now, of course, at one level, you can answer that question with the angels. They're pointing the shepherds to go to Bethlehem because they're saying peace is found here. They're announcing it because he's come. The one that Micah looked ahead to and said he will be their peace is this one. Now in Bethlehem, in in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, that's where you'll find him. Go. He's the one born of David's line. He is the word made flesh. That's where peace is to be found, in Jesus. But I think we have to do a little we have to probe a little deeper here. Not necessarily do better than that, but we have, to, we have to do more than simply say that because saying that peace has come in Jesus is, diff, is different from actually seeing it, seeing it in our experience and in the world around us. I think we can genuinely ask, okay, so you said peace came with Jesus, but where is it? Where is it? One of my favorite engagements with this question, I think Christmas always puts that question on our radar because Christmas is about celebrating what's already happened and what it means for us, and yet we always have to compare that to whether or not it seems true in our experience. So it always brings us back to this question of where is this promised peace? One of my favorite engagements with it is in a pretty old Christmas hymn um, that was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who's one of America's most famous poets back in the 1860s. It's, it's now in our hymnals as I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It was originally written as a poem just called Christmas Bells. It was written on Christmas Day in 1864. What had happened in 1864 was carnage on a level that no one could have imagined. 1864 was the worst year of the American Civil War. By this point, they just the sides had, had stopped worrying about limiting casualties and were out to win at all costs. And there was enough bitterness on both sides that that there was no, no one was really even batting an eye at this point at the tens of thousands of casualties that any one battle might incur. He wrote at the end of that year, 
a year of brutality that is almost unimaginable. You know how it's gotten to the point with, with government spending where we don't really notice the difference in our minds between million and billion and trillion? They just all kind of lumped in together because over time, the numbers are just so big, they're intangible to us. That's what had happened to numbers of casualties in the American Civil War by this time. Where in early battles, someone would have heard that hundreds of people were killed and just been blown away by that. Because you can imagine hundreds of people dying. Now battles all over the country are happening in which thousands of people are dying. And, and the numbers have just stopped meaning what they, what they once did. That, that's the context in which Longfellow wrote. But it was actually even more personal for him than that. Longfellow's own son had decided to join up against his wishes. And he was brutally injured in a battle in 1863. So here he's writing this hymn, this poem, while his country's torn apart, where casualties are mounting up all over the place, and his own son has been maimed by, the, by this war. And he takes up the angel's promise of peace and elaborates on it. Here's the first couple stanzas. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Who doesn't want to hear that, right? It's beautiful. But then, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And we get that, right? Even if we haven't lived through war, we get what it is to see vividly that peace is not a reality, not the kind of all-encompassing peace that we just described from the Old Testament. This year alone, just in our little church, we've had multiple members who have had to struggle through job loss. We've had a member whose mother has contracted cancer. We've had members who have, who have lost uh, a baby. We've had members who have struggled with depression, the, in, the absence of this internal peace. We've had members, doubtlessly, who have struggle with disappointment and guilt and failure in the battle with sin, who have struggled with broken relationships, who have struggled with just sheer exhaustion, and who are just sad, who are just looking for a happiness that's elusive. So where's the peace? Where's the shalom? Here's Longfellow's conclusion. It's rhetorically powerful, and it's good so far as it goes. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. But I think we can do better than that. That's beautiful, right? That's a beautiful sentiment, wonderfully written. But it says nothing about Jesus. When we ask where is peace, I think we've got to answer it where the, where the angels did. Peace is to be found in him. But why and how? I think it hinges on two things. It hinges on Jesus as the promise of God to us and Jesus as the presence of God with us. Where is peace to be found where there is clearly not peace in the world and even in our own selves? How can we look to it now as we wait on it fully to come? We can, we can do that by latching hold to Jesus. And the reason Jesus matters, even as we wait for him to come in full, is that he represents for us the promise of God and the presence of God. God. Let me say more about what I mean here. The promise of God. 
I love the way the writer of the Hebrews starts out his book. We're about to head there. That's our next series together as a congregation. is a year-long series in the book of Hebrews. And, and, and where, the, where he starts, is, it's all about how God speaks to us. He said, formerly, God spoke to us through the law and the prophets. But now, in these latter days, he has spoken to us in his Son. What did he mean about the law and the prophets, if not what we've just traced? These writers looked ahead to a time of peace. They gave to us the promises of God for a new world and a better life. Now the writer to Hebrews is saying Jesus is, is that, but that in full, that more clearly, more, in a more comprehensive and vivid way. How is that true? How does Jesus become the promise to, of God to us in a way that the earlier prophets were not? I think it's partly because in him we see more clearly how peace is possible. I've already mentioned it, that, that Jesus, Jesus exposed something that the Old Testament could only look ahead to through shadows and, and, and not very clearly at all, that, that any peace with God is going to require a sacrifice that's greater than any bull or any goat. Jesus establishes peace for us through his own body and his own blood. But I think it's more than that. It's not just that Jesus helps us to see more clearly how this peace is going to be possible. Jesus is the promise of God to us because he is himself that promise. Jesus' identity is communicated to us as, who is he? He is the word from the Father. Jesus himself is not one who brings promises. He is that. But he is somehow a word of promise to us. I think he, he is that because he is God staking himself to his ability to fulfill his promises to us. We look at, when we look at Jesus, what we look at is how invested God is in bringing about the promises that he's made to us. Jesus is the answer to whether or not we can trust God in the absence of a tangible peace in this life. That's why Paul says that he who didn't spare his own son won't spare anything that we need. That's the promise of the, pro- of the fact that Jesus is the word from God made flesh. You can see how this works. Ultimately, the situation we're in is this. We've got two competing statements in our heads about what is true, what's right. We have this word from the Father that, that he is for us and not against us and that he's strong enough to deliver on the promises that he's made. And then we have the word that's communicated to us in just what we experience and what we see around us, that, that peace isn't really here in the way that we're looking for it, we, that, 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 that things aren't what they should be and that they may not get that way. It's, it's the same impulse that Bonhoeffer engaged in a letter we read from a couple weeks back where he he is in prison, separated from his fiancée, and looking to the significance of Christmas. And he writes to her that Christmas comes as a promise that all of our ideas are wrong. Our ideas that, that this separation, this imprisonment, this impending death is what's real. It, Christmas is a, is a promise that that isn't what's real, that Jesus is what's real. In other words, what we've got to do is decide which word we listen to. Do we listen to the circumstances of the present, to the, the, the factors that affect us now and make us question whether or not God can make good on his promises? 
Or do we latch hold to Jesus and the promise that he is God himself identified with us? Christ did not come to give us comfort and happiness and, and fulfill all of our wishes in this life. He, his disciples were looking for that. They thought he was going to get rid of the Roman oppressors and make them his co-regents over a new worldwide empire. And he was manifestly not here for that. He came and went and changed nothing on that front. I think we fall into the same trap of thinking that if Jesus can't keep us from unhappiness in this life or from any kind of deprivation or lack of comfort, then therefore he just can't be who he says he is. Our, our minds are at once too small in our focus on what Jesus is and too big in our focus on how important the things that happen around us are. Ultimately, Christ comes to us as a word of promise that calls us to latch hold to him while rather than fixate on the things that are like grass which always pass away. Are you going to evaluate the promise of a coming kingdom in which there is no want and no fear because things that are no more lasting than, than, than grass or the flowers of the field aren't going your way? The word of the Lord stands forever. And that's why Jesus provides peace to us if we can latch hold to him and trust that he is who he claims to be. There's also peace found in Jesus in a world in which, in which circumstantially peace just isn't a reality. There's also a, a peace to be found now, to be claimed now in Jesus, because he represents not just the promise of God to us as the word, but the presence of God with us as the word who is made flesh. Christmas is about the incarnation. That's what theologians, that's the word theologians use to describe the coming of God into human form. God taking on our form. This is the grounds of our peace, that God is with us, Emmanuel. All through the Minor Prophets, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there were scattered references throughout these Minor Prophets that that peace was going to be associated with God being with his people, coming to them in a new way. Haggai, the the passage that Drew read from earlier this morning, is is one of the best ones. Zephaniah makes the same promise, that, that the presence of God is the key to giving peace. And the message of the Incarnation is that the Word became flesh and dwelt here with us. And here's how this gives us peace. Let me just, in closing, throw out a few things for you to think about this week. This week is a week of, of appreciation and celebration of the truth that God has come to us, that he's with us and made flesh for us. And, and here's, how that's, here's how that can give us peace, even when peace is not visible around us. First, it reminds us that what seems to threaten our peace was experienced by God himself in the incarnation. So even though the reasons why we are allowed to, to suffer the way that we are are mysterious to us, the goal itself is not in question. Does that make sense? Jesus, Jesus the, the, the message of Christmas is that Jesus is God made flesh. The story of Jesus' life is a story of Jesus going through all the things that we go through. And the story of Jesus is a story of none of that calling into question whether or not he could deliver on his promises. So it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of the mystery of why we suffer, of why there's not the peace that was promised to us perfectly all, all around us. But it tells us not to, not to think that just because our experience includes suffering that Jesus' word is not true. Jesus himself suffered in everything that we have, and he did it without sin, and he survived it, and he accomplished his goals through it and not in spite of it. Here's, here's uh, one of the most 
catchy ways that I've seen this put. I've seen it quoted several different times from a writer named Dorothy Sayers. It's a little bit irreverent maybe, but just bear with me. This is how she puts it. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and he's played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He can exact nothing from man that he's not already exacted from himself. Now, the reason this is encouraging and helps us to latch hold to peace is that there's just something powerful about empathy, about knowing that someone else has been where you are. It gives them a credibility and an ability to, to minister to you and speak peace to you that they wouldn't have if they had not seen what you've seen and, and experienced and felt what you have. The promise of the incarnation, of the presence of God in the Word made flesh, is that Jesus has been there. And that anything we're asked to go through, He also went through and He triumphed over it. And therefore, we should not, not, we should not elevate what we experience here as if it's the final word on what is and isn't true. Next, I think the fact that Christ has come to us, that God has made flesh and He's with us, it reminds us that God would stop at nothing to give us peace. He's promised us peace, and he put his skin in the game to deliver it. He didn't even stop at the life of his own son. So, so ultimately what we're put, opposed with is this. Does the suffering that we and others experience in this life call into question whether or not God, God cares for us? That's the question. Can God really care for us if we go through what we go through? We can't answer why God asks us to go through these things, but we can answer once and for all, does he care for us? Because we have that answer in Jesus, the word who has made flesh. He wouldn't even spare his own son. Finally, the presence of God with us, the incarnation, it reminds us that his presence is never, has never left us, that it's ours now, that even in the midst of a world that doesn't know peace, we can know his peace because he is with us. He's with us in his word, which still speaks today just as it has always spoken since he gave it to us. He's with us in his supper, where he calls us to commune with him and with believers all over the world and sharing the meal of, of, of the Lord's Supper. He's with us there mysteriously in a special way. And he's with us by his spirit. He's with us by his spirit. In John chapter 14, one of the most important promises of the Spirit's coming. Jesus promises the helper and connects it to the peace that he gives to us. Here's what he says. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Spirit, in other words, will be with you when I'm gone. And then here's how Jesus applies it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. If you don't know peace, this is a week in which you are called to seek out the presence of God in your life. It's promised to us by his spirit. Don't forget to seek it. Don't forget to pray for it. Don't forget to worship him for it. 
Because in him and in his presence, which is still ours, you can know peace. You can't know it anywhere else, not truly, unless you seek it in Christ. The angel's word speaks of peace not to everyone, but to those on whom God's favor rests. Who is it on whom his favor rests? It is all those who trust in him. All those who trust not in their own ability and resources, but only in what Christ offers. If you want to know peace, you've got to look for it there. But the promise of the prophets and the promise of the angels is that it is a peace that is living and active and available now in part, if not in full. Why is peace so important? Why is it littered through the prophets and announced as the central word on the significance of Jesus' birth? Here's why. Because it's a shorthand for everything that God has in store for his people, of everything that's aimed at and promised by all the prophets, and it's found only in Christ. Because Christ is the one that Isaiah looked to as himself, the Prince of Peace. Father, help us, give us this peace. Because in our weakness, we turn from it all too often, and we struggle to connect with it, and we, we tend to elevate other things above it. Would you help us to see what's true and what's real and not to believe the lies of our hearts and the lies that we're told by those around us? Protect us from the distractions that come with this season and help us, Lord. Please help us to see the presence of Jesus anew and to worship you for it with the angels. Would you speak peace to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.